0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jean calling from The Post. I'm a guest-
1: president Trump, how
0: are you? Hi, Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 21st. Today, inside a decades-long campaign to reshape federal courts... In Atlanta high school confronts trauma, and British politicians in sticky situations.
2: We all remember back, kind of a turning point for Donald Trump, I think, when he pledged that there were certain people, judges, that were on a pre-approved list, while the man who is largely responsible for creating that list is our next speaker. Leonard Leo has been doing this for years, and today I'm so pleased to introduce him. Welcome him to the stage.
3: In February, Leonard Leo stepped onto a stage in a Florida ballroom and looked out over a potent crowd of conservative activists.
1: I think we stand at uh, at the threshold of an exciting moment uh, in our republic.
3: And he told them that they were on the edge of fulfilling a dream.
1: The revival of our structural constitution by the US Supreme Court.
4: And he told them that they had to rally and mobilize in very unprecedented ways.
1: We're gonna have to understand that judicial confirmations these days are more like political campaigns.
4: To help Trump finish transforming the judiciary.
1: No one in this room has probably experienced the kind of transformation that I think we are beginning to see.
4: I'm Robert O'Hara, and I'm a reporter on the investigative desk. I'm Sean Boberg, and I'm on the investigative unit here at The Post.
0: Why did you guys decide to do a deep dive on Leonard Leo?
4: One aspect of the Trump administration that has been highly successful has been his placement of federal judges at a very rapid rate on the bench. And we wanted to look at the factors in that success, and we found that one huge influencer was actually outside of government. Most average Americans don't know who Leonard Leo is. He's arguably the most influential person over an entire branch of government. You've been described as the most powerful recruiter in the world, Leonard Leo, the conservative pipeline to the Supreme Court, Leonard Leo, the
1: judicial puppet master. were
2: well, you upset the Justice Kennedy, a Republican, had sided with
0: liberal members of the court when it came to limits on abortion rights.
1: For me, it's not about Roe v. Wade. It's about interpreting the Constitution as, as it's it's interpret the Constitution. Judges it ought be the the Constitution 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 to be interpreting uh, and interpret the Constitution as it's written. And he's matters. going to interpret it as it's written. And that and the courts have a role to play in enforcing all those structural features of the constitution that limit the power of our government.
4: Leonard Leo is a 53-year-old executive at the Federalist Society, which is a nonprofit sort of a networking group for conservative and libertarian lawyers. He grew up in New Jersey, went to law school at Cornell and came to Washington, D.C. as one of the Federal Society's earliest employees in the early 90s. And ever since, his influence
0: has grown steadily year after year. When Leonard Leo talks about transforming the courts, what does he mean?
4: In part, he means filling a vast number of vacancies that exist on the federal bench with jurists who would interpret the constitution as a rigid document. He predicted by the end of Trump's first term, one third of the appellate court judges in the United States, which is the level right below the Supreme Court, would have been appointed by Trump. Now, that's a huge number.
3: The goal here is to pare back the Supreme Court's role so that it doesn't create what Leo and his allies believe are new rights. For example, Roe v. Wade is a new right that's not in the Constitution. Gay marriage is a new right that's not in the Constitution. All sorts of laws that govern the government's role in regulating American society would be rejected by the kind of court that Leonard Leo envisions.
0: What is the scope of Leo's influence?
3: Leo's not only the senior executive at the Federalist Society He's also the president's personal advisor who guides the president through the judicial nomination process. And behind the scenes, he runs and directs a network of nonprofits that strive to influence the American people to support the kinds of nominees that he supports and that the president has named.
0: And that network of nonprofits that Leo is connected with has raised some questions. Questions about where all that money is coming from.
4: What we did find was there are many groups that work towards a common goal.
0: So, Leonard Leo is an executive at the Federalist Society, and then he's also involved in all of these nonprofits that also work with conservative causes. How does that work, and like, what does he actually do?
4: So, Leonard Leo has become a master fundraiser, and Part of what he's done is create a model for these nonprofit groups, some of which are very obscure, have very little public footprint or presence. Can you list
0: some of those nonprofits?
4: Freedom and Opportunity Fund, America Engaged, BH Fund, Catholic Voices, Wellspring Committee, Catholic Association, Catholic Association Foundation.
0: So, how did you go about figuring that out, how he's actually operating?
4: Well, we drew on several sources. One principal one was the tax filings that nonprofits are required to submit to the IRS.
3: There are phone numbers, there are names, there are addresses.
4: We created spreadsheets to kind of keep track of all this stuff. What we found in looking through these documents is time and time again, these different iterations and different nonprofits had basically the same group of people that were working with Leo and they've been working with him for almost 15 years. We found three of them, for instance, uh, Freedom and Opportunity Fund, America Engaged, and BH Fund that don't have any dedicated office space. They don't have employees. We called phone numbers and there was an answering service. They have virtually no presence and they get millions of dollars passing through them from anonymous donors and they spend it in strategic ways.
0: Why is it important that these organizations are nonprofits versus for-profits? It's important
3: for a couple of reasons. One is that, in effect, they're being subsidized by the American taxpayers because they operate as tax-exempt. And if they're charities, they're allowed to receive donations that are tax-exempt as well. But the other thing is they are allowed to operate in a sort of cloak of anonymity when it comes to the donors. And that's a real advantage when you're involved in a political fight. Depending on who you talk to, that's a great thing. There are conservative lawyers who've argued strenuously that in order for ideas to flourish, you have to be able to speak without punishment. Of course, many others criticize of the system in saying it's allowing wealthy donors to try, in effect, to
4: hijack the system, whether they're on the left or the right. When you look at the creation of the nonprofit system, The idea behind that is that we're going to create these entities that will do good for the entire community, and they get certain allowances for that. One of them is that people can donate anonymously. And what we've seen is that nonprofits have increasingly gotten involved in political fights.
3: To give you a sense of the scope, between 2014 and 2017, a subset of these groups collected More than $250 million in donations, which some people refer to as dark money, anonymous money. And they spent it on advertising and campaigns in support of conservative causes and judges.
0: So in theory, the IRS could look at these organizations, look at these nonprofits and say, these are... Being funded by political donors for political ends, and maybe they shouldn't be considered nonprofits, but that kind of regulation isn't happening.
4: It's it's possible, and we should be clear that we didn't find any example, clear example where these groups stepped over the line.
0: Can you describe one example of when this influencing process was put into place?
4: Yeah, so let me describe a sequence of events that sort of crystallizes the method Leo has employed. In 2016, when President Trump is campaigning to be president, he starts a nonprofit called BH Fund that brings in a single $24 million donation from an anonymous donor. After he becomes judicial advisor to then President Trump, that fund distributes money to another startup nonprofit called Freedom and Opportunity Fund, also led by Leo. When Brett Kavanaugh is nominated for the Supreme Court, there's a controversy that erupts over sexual misconduct from his days in high school. One of the recipients of grant money from Leo's nonprofit Freedom and Opportunity is a group called Independent Women's Voice. Independent Women's Voice is a nonprofit whose leader has described the group as part of the Republican conservative arsenal. Being branded as neutral, but actually having the people who know know that you're actually conservative puts us in a unique position. Which became hugely powerful and strategic in the context of this judicial nomination fight where... Brett Kavanaugh was being accused of sexual misconduct.
2: This is how I met Brett Kavanaugh, the boy who sexually assaulted me.
4: Independent Women's Voice took to the airwaves.
2: This is a
0: uh, political assassination of Judge Kavanaugh.
4: Their representatives on Fox News.
0: I'm a registered Democrat, right? It's a shame to watch the party of John F. Kennedy devolve into a mob
4: dozens of times speaking in defense of Brett Kavanaugh.
0: What's not enough to stop a nomination, they want to ruin his life, his career. Uh, They they want him to not be able to coach girls basketball.
2: Good morning, everyone.
4: They took part in rallies here in the nation's capital.
2: It is also unfair to make Judge Brett Kavanaugh the stand-in for every predator and perpetrator of those wrongdoings.
4: And that's just one example of all this money and all these advertising campaigns.
0: In all of these cases where money from anonymous donors are being siphoned through various nonprofits, who are the anonymous donors? What do we know about them?
4: The vast amount of money flowing into these influence campaigns is untraceable to specific donors. We don't know what their interests are. We don't know if they're having influence over the list of Supreme Court nominees or other federal judges that are now nominated for the bench. And the problem with that is if we don't know what their interest is, we don't know if the judiciary or particular judges have conflicts or in the worst case scenario are furthering those interests.
0: It raises this question of how do these donors influence any of the advice that you may give, for example, to, you know, candidate or now President Trump or
1: when it comes to judiciary? Well, first of all, uh, there's there's no
3: secrets at the Federalist Society. Our Washington Post colleague, Dalton Bennett, uh, sat down with Leonard
1: Leo. As for your comment about contributions and, you know, uh, the influence of money on movements, let's remember that in this country, uh, the abolitionist movement, The women's suffrage movement, the American Revolution, the early labor movement, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s were all very much fueled by very wealthy people and oftentimes wealthy people who chose to be anonymous. That's a remarkable comparison that he's making
3: and it underscores the drive and the fervor that they're bringing
4: to this cause. I think it comes down to a simple question. The courts of this country are based on a premise that the law and interpretation of the law will be carried out impartially. And when you inject money, and particularly anonymous money, into the process of confirming judges, the question people have to ask themselves is, Does that open the courts to outside influence? And should we be able to track that and monitor it?
0: Sean Boberg and Robert O'Hara are investigative reporters for The Post.
3: So our kids come here hardened. We're trying to break them down. Give them a lot of hugs tomorrow and build them back up. And that's pretty much it. No questions. Let's rock the world tomorrow. Huh? Oh, hey! Can everybody wear black? That
2: black? This guy named Ed Morris. He's a social worker at the school. His idea is to have a funeral to, as he says, bury the pain bury the pain that students are carrying around with them. Laura Meckler is
0: a national education reporter for The Post.
2: There is a lot of poverty, a lot of family trauma among the students there. So it's a nice school. You walk in and it's like been relatively recently renovated and, you know, the teachers seem really caring. But the kids who are there are bringing with them real life traumas.
0: Ed Morris is a social worker at Frederick Douglass High School on the west side of Atlanta. And he decided to try something pretty unusual, to try to help kids process some of the stuff that they're dealing with outside of school. His program is an extreme example of something called social-emotional learning. It's based on this idea that kids can't be expected to learn math when they're dealing with real trauma, and that maybe schools should be helping to address that trauma too.
2: So what he did was he staged a mock funeral in the school gymnasium, and this was not a a small deal. It was voluntary, but almost the entire school was there. There was a choir, there was a eulogy, there were powerful speakers, and there was a casket that was... Was well, a casket there was an actual casket brought in by the girls basketball team who had recently won the state championship and they were in their matching sweatshirts and they literally served as pallbearers bringing in this casket to the front of the room. <laughs> Throughout the entire ceremony, if you will, the casket was before them. And um, at the end, students were asked to come down and bring essays that they had written ahead of time. They had each been asked to write an essay about what's holding them back. What sort of pain in their life would they like to bury? And what are, what are the kinds of things that these students wrote about in their essays? Well, so it was interesting because after this event was over, They don't actually bury the essays the 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 principal and the social worker, this guy Ed Morris, read through them. And they wanted to see what was going on and see, you know, they're anonymous, but to the extent that if there was anything really troubling that they wanted to try to track down. And they sat down and started reading them one at a time. And. And it was actually pretty overwhelming, for us I'll just say, looking at this pile of essays. I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper, and they start going through them one by one. And, you know, some of them were sort of routine teenage things, and some of them were not routine at all. So some of the essays that I personally read while I was with them included one person who wrote that, you know, all the males are in prison for murder except me. Somebody else wrote, I would like to bury depression. I'm having so many suicidal thoughts. Someone else wrote, my mom said your grandma should have left you where you was at, which means should have left me and my two sisters in foster care.
3: One thing holding me back in school is the death of my mother and brother. Then to top it off, my dad hasn't even took a chance to step up in my life. My mom has been gone for 10 years.
2: My granddad was physically abusing me and my mama didn't really do anything to prevent it. Hmm.
3: My brother died in jail. He was doing two life sentence over some stupid stuff.
2: R.I.P. Uncle Tim. R.I.P. Big Brother. R.I.P. Mommy. R.I.P. Twin Sis. R.I.P. Grandpa. And then things like this. I want to forgive my rapist and my mother who never really was by my side.
5: Wow,
2: So it kind of gives you a sense that this is serious stuff that kids are dealing with. And, you know, the, the social worker, Ed Morris, turned to the principal after he started reading the first few and he said, you know, this is why these kids can't learn.
3: Me being responsible for my daddy leaving me at three years old.
0: Yeah, they,
3: do. they blame themselves. They said, this is why they come in angry.
0: The social worker who had come up with this idea, why did he think that this was
2: an important thing to do at school with a bunch of students? I think that his view is that these kind of deep traumas that kids bring to school really hold them back and that it's keeping them from learning, frankly. It's keeping them from behaving in school. It's keeping them from engaging in what they need to do. What was the reaction from
0: from other people, from teachers and administrators, when they heard that this was going to be the plan to hold a mock funeral at a high school.
2: Well, the principal said that at first he was like, that sounds a little uh...
5: morbid.
3: Um, but then Dr. Mars immediately explained to me how it's a rebirth and it's, it's so students can get out their problems that they've had in the past and move forward. So at that point, I was 100 percent behind it.
2: The Atlanta public schools have their own program around the idea of social-emotional learning, which is what this is an example of, the idea of helping kids with things in their life that aren't purely academic. But the Atlanta public schools did not plan this funeral, and they were not really in on this. This is something that was done independently by this school. And... So it seemed to be that there was a little bit of a tension around the question of, like, is this going to work? Is this a good idea? It's dramatic. It's cathartic. But does it really work? And, you know, I don't know that we know the answer to that.
0: I mean, it seems like a really interesting idea. But if the goal is to be able to get kids to process some of the issues that they're dealing with at home in a way that helps them perform better at school, do we
2: know that it's working and getting towards that goal? You know, I don't know if we do know. It hasn't been formally evaluated. He's tried it at other schools. His view is it works, that the schools are better places to be afterwards, that behavior improves and academics improve. But I think that if in order to really know it, it has to be studied. And I asked him that question. I asked Ed Morris that question. He said he would like to have it formally evaluated. But that hasn't happened yet. Are things like this happening at other schools in other parts of the country? So yes, this general move towards social emotional learning, the idea that you can deal with children as as whole human beings and not just as little learners is very, very much in vogue. I see it really as a backlash to this period of accountability and high stakes testing that we've come out of. Um, there's a lot of you know, parents and teachers who just felt that went way too far toward just drilling, 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 and that we need to actually look at kids as human beings. The idea that you're connecting sort of on a human level and building relationships, not just learning the material. So at the
0: school in Atlanta... Are, are they going to have more mock funerals or, or similar kind of
2: events in the future? You know, I don't know if they're going to do it again. I think it would lose its power in a lot of ways. You know, there's only so many times you can kind of grab kids in that way. So I think they have an opportunity now this year that they have done that and they've opened that up and they've opened these conversations up to really help kids then turn the corner and start to really put some of those things behind them. But You know, one of the questions I had coming out of this was a lot of the things that people wrote about, you know, some of them were things that happened in the past and you need to just leave them in the past. But some of the things are ongoing traumas. You know, if you don't have a dad in your life, you also don't have a dad in your life tomorrow. If you are experiencing homelessness or not enough food to eat, you know, those are everyday concerns. So, you know, just having a cathartic event. It's not going to solve it by its own. But will it help? Maybe.
0: Laura Meckler is a national education reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from Jennifer Hassan, a social media editor in The Post's London bureau. A new kind of protest targeting British politicians ahead of Thursday's European Union election.
5: Milkshaking is exactly what it sounds like. It is the act of a milkshake being thrown over a controversial or divisive character in British politics. Nigel Farage is a divisive figure in British politics. He is a Fox News analyst and was one of the top figures in the Brexit Leave campaign campaign. So, yesterday, Farage had a, what I believe was a banana and salted caramel milkshake from Five Guys, thrown at him after talking to crowds in Newcastle. Soon after the attack, you could see that Farage was, was quite shaken. A complete he could be heard reprimanding his security team for their inability to uh, protect him successfully. Milkshaking has not just happened to Nigel Farage. Um, in recent weeks, we have seen Carl Benjamin, a UK Independence Party candidate um, in the European elections. So he was milkshaked four times. Yes!
4: No, it
5: wasn't me! And also the former English Defence League leader Tommy Robinson. Well, he was milkshaked twice in just two days. People seem to be choosing milkshakes as the weapon of choice because when you know when you're standing around with a milkshake, you look a bit more inconspicuous than if you were standing there holding an egg. So, you know, if, if you're out at a rally or a campaign event and you see someone holding an egg, then your security team kind of has a heads up, like they know what's coming. But to see somebody standing around holding a beverage, you don't automatically assume that they're about to tip that or pour that all over somebody. But I think after what happened yesterday, anyone seen hovering around holding a drink will probably be a, watched a lot more closely now.
0: Jennifer Hassan is the social media editor for The Foreign Desk at The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're a daily listener of the podcast, you can sign up for Post Reports email blasts. You'll get a message every afternoon when a new episode drops with a heads up about the stories on the show. Subscribe to the newsletter at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.